Good evening and welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal. I'm Ian Lane, your host, a clinical and population health researcher at UMass Medical School and aspiring clinician, investigator, interested in all things methods and the methodology. This is a show, as you're well aware by this point, dedicated explicitly to exploring the relevant primary scientific literature in nursing and the health sciences. And um, I would say also exploring ideas in terms of quantitative analysis, be them epidemiologic, clinical, or otherwise. In today's episode, I just have yet another thought experiment to run through with you. And I think this is important in, and perhaps the theme this week is keeping an open mind. Um, keeping an open mind in this context in terms of not limiting oneself to the possibilities that are out there. Um, This was spurred by a conversation with a colleague in the psychiatry department the other day who had mentioned to me uh, the old adage that there are no, no new ideas. And I've never particularly liked that conception of reality because I think that there are an infinite number of ideas and each of them unique in their own combinatorial way. And it got me thinking that you could probably make a concrete argument that it is legitimately mathematically infinite, that there are an infinite number of new ideas and that with a certain amount, and not all of them are viable ideas, let's be clear, but in terms of at least the capability of producing new, creative, original, novel ideas, I think that it becomes infinite in a quantitative way. Now, for those of you who are not aware, there is a kind of mathematics of large numbers called combinatorics, and It's not really quite fair to characterize it that way, but as somebody who is not an expert in that area, I think that that's probably the best that you'll get out of me. Um, However, my understanding of combinatorics, limited though it is, it it is operational in, uh, in the sense that I can actually run through a basic combinatoric uh, analysis that involves a Bernoulli probability distribution and some factorial analysis, which sounds fancy, but it's actually not particularly hard mathematically to compute. I mean, it's difficult by hand in the sense that you're dealing with extraordinarily large numbers, sometimes in the quintillions and higher, which is absurd when you're trying to write it out. So even when you're doing things in scientific notation, it still becomes really, really absurd. Um, but there are calculators for this sort of thing. And the reason I'm thinking about this, as I mentioned, is because of this conversation about there are no new ideas and me sort of uh, backlashing against that concept. And then it struck me that that's also true for many other things. So here's how this works. Imagine asking yourself how many different ways you could pair two sets of things together of a certain 
concrete integer value where they are, you're not repeating the use of any one of them. And you are essentially finding as many different combinations, hence combinatorics, or permutations thereof that you could possibly find based on the different combination options available. And you can imagine with just a couple choices in each bin, let's say there are two bins, um, with just a couple options, the number, you know, it's probably fairly large depending on what you're looking at, but it's not obscene. Um, The more numbers you add to these bins, though, the more combinations there are, and thus the more absolutely insane these resultant figures become. So let me give you a concrete example. And this is why I think this is interesting. And I'll, I'll save my sort of PSA point to the end here. Imagine that there are, let's say, 20 different ways to be a nurse practitioner. And I'll, I'm only saying nurse practitioner versus registered nurse in the broadest sense, because a registered nurse's possibilities, even beyond that of someone who's a nurse practitioner, are even larger. And so this number would be even more inflated, actually. So just delimit this to advanced practice nurses. And it doesn't have to be nurse practitioner specifically. It can be nurse midwife, nurse anesthetist, so any advanced practice nursing professional. Let's say there are 20 different fairly common avenues. And I mean, you can imagine inpatient hospital settings, you can imagine uh, outpatient ambulatory care settings, you can imagine standalone surgical centers, you can imagine minute clinics at various, you can just imagine a plethora of different potential avenues. Let's say there are 20 common avenues for a nurse practitioner or advanced practice nurse to practice. And then let's say that in bin number two, there are nine different ways of being an advanced practice nurse. I mean, these include women's health, nurse practitioner, nurse midwife, certified registered nurse anesthetist, uh, family nurse practitioner, pediatric nurse. So you get the picture, right? Um, clinical nurse specialist. There's, there's potentially um, a couple more. But it's, let's say it's about nine or ten. So let's just say nine, just to be on the, uh, on the lower side, to limit ourselves a little bit. So how many combinations are possible? And we'll use a combinatoric calculator. I'm using the one on numberempire.com, very simply, just for the sake of convenience. How many combinations are possible with 20 different avenues of practice combining with those uh, to find the different permutations of nine different areas of practice for, or for the different population foci from the consensus model. When we look at this and we actually run the Bernoulli probability distribution and do the factorial analysis with this calculator, and it, this one is interesting because number empire shows you the actual equation and shows you how they find this number. The answer is 167,960 possible permutations. And that is without selecting any one of those numbers more than once. 
Now, imagine that you can select more. Uh, so you can select one of these different options more than once, which would make sense because just as an example, you can become an acute care nurse practitioner and then become a psychiatric nurse practitioner, say, if you want to work in an outpatient neuropsychiatric office. Um, you might be a nurse midwife, but also be a women's health practitioner, dual certified for whatever reason. Suppose that you add in the possibility of selecting options more than once. With 20 different common avenues, yes, there are perhaps more than this, but just imagine there are 20. And now imagine that there are nine possible choices and you can select items more than once from that category. When you recompute this figure, the result now is 6,906,900 options, or permutations, rather. So the different combinations amount to <laughs> almost 7 million. Now, obviously, not all of these different options are viable, in fact, maybe the vast majority are not viable. But what small proportion of 7 million different permutations that exist are actually viable options? Maybe it's only 2%, say. But 2% of 7 million is 140,000. So if there are 140,000 different possible avenues for someone to embark on a career, well, I'm, those are some really serious opportunities. And I think this is one of the reasons why I so highly value nursing for those who are well-suited for the career, who are in it for the right reasons, etc., um, one of the many reasons that this is a wonderful career field is because of the sheer volume of opportunity and the cost of opportunity lost should you be well-suited for this and not take the opportunity to move into it. Now, there are other fields where this is uh, very similar, but there are few applied healthcare-related fields on par with nursing in this respect. So partly reaching out to my nurse colleagues like this is just to instill the sense that, you know, the way that you're envisioning your career being different or unique to you is absolutely possible. It's quite possibly a viable option for you depending on your contextual circumstances. But more broad than this, my goal in presenting this information is on a more pure level to just demonstrate mathematically that there are an inordinately larger amount of possibilities than people are often willing to admit. Now, I think the viability piece is an important component to remember. There is a philosophical tradition in uh, higher academia, particularly in the humanities, called post-structuralism, which is, I think, an offshoot of post-modernism, though I'm not as well um, entrenched in these philosophies as I think uh, many people at least believe themselves to be. And I am not a proponent of the post-structuralist view per se, but 
um, regardless of my being for or against a post-structuralist conception of reality, um, I think one of the things that they get right or correct in their analysis of the world is that it can be parsed into an almost or near infinite or maybe even an actual infinite number of different ways, different subcomponents, if you will. And that's true. But the conclusion is that therefore nothing is of paramount importance, nothing is of utmost value, nothing is uh, to be valued in a way that it is hierarchically organized to be more pressing, more important, more whatever. And I think that's wrong. And that's because just because there are an infinite number of permutations doesn't mean that every single one of those is of equal value. There are things that are more important than other things. There are also contexts which bring to light different reasons for elevating some of those contextual uh, factors over others, or some of those permutations, rather, over others. And so, you know, these might be, it might be an ever-changing um, wave of sorts. It might be in flux, perhaps, but there, there's likely to be some stability across who knows how many different permutations. It might, it's, it likely varies based on the question you're asking and the area in which you're asking the question. But you can apply this logic to essentially any combination of things with discrete probability distributions. And so, you know, you can uh, do the same thing in the world of psychology or medicine or law, and you might get a much larger number than you anticipated in terms of possible permutations of the different combinations that you are um, you are allowing at least into the equation. Now, obviously, not all mathematical. Uh, expressions are expressions of reality per se. And um, you could fabricate this in such a way as, as to make it irrelevant noise. Um, but you can delimit it in such a way as well as we did here, where it's, it's telling, but it's actually pragmatically appropriate, and it makes some sense to us on the ground. Um, so now I'm pontificating a little bit, and I don't mean to be so verbose and so loquacious about this, because it seems to be esoteric in a way that is functionally useless. But I don't think that that's true. I think that this should be, at least in part, a frame for you, for us as people who are optimistic about humanity and about the potential of humanity in the world. I think this is something that we can embrace as a philosophical vantage point from which to become more optimistic, perhaps. And I'm historically a little on the pessimistic side, um, perhaps even a little bit cynical in some sense. And yet, hopelessly desire more than that and I'm constantly fighting my own cynicism with this kind of logic. Now 
yesterday I uploaded an episode on the podcast about personality disorders and managing behavioral change expectations. And I think that um, while I stand behind the analysis, I think that it, it may be misinterpreted by many, although I'm hoping that's not the case. My listeners are very savvy. You guys are very savvy individuals. But but that notwithstanding, I think that some people will misinterpret that t- to be more of a, a pessimistic view on the so-called inability of these individuals to change. And while I think that the the numbers there and the data we have are bleak, to say the least, I think that what that should instill in us instead is a more mindful approach to acceptance. Because there is an assumption that people ought to change. They ought to be normal. And insofar as they are safe and and at least functional enough in society to get by and to not completely destroy everything in their path along the way, which I realize is often not the case in the more severe personality disorders, but that uh, regardless, within a certain parameter... I think it's okay to acknowledge and accept people for who they are and that adopting that kind of mindfulness is a skill that we all could benefit from utilizing. In the same respect, I think developing and utilizing another similar kind of skill, which is to look at situations like this from an analytic, quantitative standpoint, a logical standpoint, And think to ourselves, well, maybe I'm not open to all the possibilities. Now, the reason I brought up the personality disorder um, episode for this is because although I do have this um, data-driven belief that change is going to be very difficult to come by in this subpopulation, I also think that we don't fully understand these things because the the number of different permutations of the five dimensions of personality, that being the big five, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and negative emotionality, uh, I think that there are, you know, people will talk about how five dimensions of personality structure are, you know, it's quite small. But when you think about the number of different situations an individual can find themselves in throughout their lifetime, which is, I mean, in the, on the order of probably trillions uh, or billions, I, you know, I've, I'm not exactly sure, but I know it's going to be some absurd number. Couple that with the number of permutations available when you use a combinatoric uh, ex, um, equation to figure out coupling those <laughs> with a repeating five dimension patterns, you're going to get an infinite number of different possibilities, which means to me that there are probably so many different innumerable patterns of behavior in these um, so-called disorders that while we do get these stable patterns that arise in, say, you know, six, eight, ten different 
characteristic traits and temperaments, I think that there's so much left that we don't know, which far exceeds what we actually do know, that to make any substantial conclusion based on the limited data that we have, knowing that all these possibilities are out there and we've only sampled such a small amount of them, you know, to me, thinking in this term really elevates my optimism, which, as I mentioned, is not a natural thing for me. And I think this is a skill that one can adopt. I think assuming you are high enough in uh, openness to intellectual ideas. So, you know, there are some people that are not as open to um, interesting intellectual flights of fantasy, but they are not the ones listening to this podcast, generally speaking. If you're in, we're at minute 21 on the dot, actually. If you've listened to this for 21 minutes, you are high in trait openness. And I think that that's pretty well established at this point. Um, I don't think you need to take the big five aspect scale psychometric test to figure it out. And, uh, you know, I think if you're sufficiently high in openness and you, if you start to invoke this, this, um, I would say, well, perhaps skill isn't the right term for it, but adopt this method of thinking about possibility. I think it opens, at least it's opened my eyes to the limitations that I impose. And I think that reducing the limitations we impose on the world is going to be very, very important, particularly when dealing with other human beings. And I think it maybe speaks again to this idea of increasing one's self-compassion uh, and compassion for others. So perhaps the real takeaway isn't so much optimism but compassion and the development of this compassion for other people. Thanks for listening, and I hope to have another successful episode with you soon.